Mundane. It'll be like Chris the Tippet. Talk to me about something mundane. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had nothing. How the weather's treating you where you live. It's beautiful and sunny today, but it was very cold earlier this week. Good. Great. Grant. Okay. My co-host for Break Drink this week is Paul Eaton. Hi, Paul. Hello. How are you? Good. So we had a little debate or chat last week that I thought should be recorded. So what were we talking about last week, Paul? Well, we were having this conversation about how we prepare people to be practitioners in the field. And this sort of spun a little bit off of uh, some conversations we've been having here in our program uh, our academic program around things related to giving people credit for time worked in the field, whether people are prepared to enter, for example, a master's program or a doctoral program uh, based on do they need to have a certain number of years of work experience um, to bring into the, to the, to the academic space. Um, and I think that you and I sort of had some varying opinions about this. So this was broadly what I think we were sort of starting to discuss. And it flourishes always into a whole bunch of different conversations around what students should be learning, what they need to be well-prepared practitioners in the digital age, all things that you and I care a lot about. Right. So we got in this conversation. And so when we say professional prep for professionals, we're talking about those working in post-secondary education, so colleges, community colleges, universities, two-year, four-year. They could be practitioners in different fields or functional area, typically a staff or professional in higher education. Some might do um, college student personnel is what it once called, or student affairs. Some might do counseling education programs. Some might do other random programs that just happen to be working in the field of student affairs, academic affairs, or a professional who didn't even know they have a whole home in this field um, that we know is um, higher education and professional practice in student affairs. So um, that's kind of where we started because you and I both have different uh, thoughts about do you need a master's to go into the field to work at some of the entry-level positions they have in the field. So an example might be a residence hall director, um, maybe you're doing uh, peer tutoring and development. I don't know. It looks different. And we both come from different backgrounds and different countries. And we had different practices that we kind of were debating. And I said a controversial thing that maybe we don't need a master's right away. And maybe experience or apprenticeship model might be better suited to prepare professionals before they go into the academic curricular program. Yeah, and of course, my background is uh, that I went a sort of more traditional U.S. route growing up in the United States, and I was highly involved in college. I decided I wanted to work with college students uh, as a full-time job, but there's not really an undergraduate degree in this, right? So even if you're in a traditional sort of education field, 
preparing people to work in post-secondary ed has largely been relegated to graduate education. And there are some people having conversations about whether that's the right thing for us to be doing or not. But that's the way it is currently structured. So for me, I went, you know, right from my undergrad into a master's program, a two-year, you know, 36-credit-hour program that had a focus on counseling and student development, uh, basic administrative functionality of the college or university environment, um, and, and did a traditional route in the sense of, you know, I had a graduate assistantship that paid for me to go to school full-time, so I was able to stay focused on my studies. Uh, I was able to get some of the real-world experience that you're talking about through the assistantship, and then coupled that with you know, practica experiences and also an internship between my first and second year, uh, which allowed me to then come out and take on a a full-time role uh, coming out of a master's program. So that's a model that still is largely used. But like you said, I now work in a master's program where we have a lot of students that are working full-time. They're not taking a traditional route. Some And we have a range of students, right? Some students who are doing things like you said, hall directors or residence hall coordinators coming right out of undergrad to people who've been working in the field for 20 years and have sort of hit a ceiling in terms of their ability to move up that are now coming back into the field and thinking about or coming back to school in order to kind of tool up or get the educational background that the institution says they need in terms of having a master's or in some cases a doctorate. It's funny that you mentioned about the credential at the undergrad. So my program, um, I've never actually studied higher ed per se, um, as far as a program goes, but I study it in terms of its development and professional development and how we support and train this group of professionals. Um, always working alongside um, as an assistantship with a different grad program. Um, I come from K twelve background, and as you talked about an undergrad experience, this made me think of um, the school I went to in upstate New York had an undergrad degree for educators K twelve, and they finished their school program. Um, the expectation was they're to go in the field before they go to a master's, and they would have up until five years to get credentials. So this is in New York State. Um, one of the top education states in the U.S., so I give credit to uh, what they do. They train educators in in Canada and the U.S. that are duly accredited in both countries. And um, something that's interesting that they do is when you finish your degree, you go and teach because then you'll come back and get a master's that would specialize you perhaps. So some people do special education, some do administration or leadership, some do ESL, um, language, linguistics. So depending on their area of like reading or math or wherever their specialty is, they'd focus their master's in K-12. And I, I gave you the example last week about the MBA, like most MBAs I know with a reputable background require at least three to five years work experience before you come back and do a practitioner based degree that's a grad program um so i think of mbas do this um social work has this as well some counseling depending on what they they're licensing for counseling ed i should say um but bringing up the undergrad our k-12 friends do do that and they do require them to have experience even though they might do a four or five year undergrad degree that gives them the ways to step in to manage the classroom why don't we help our higher ed practitioners Think about them stepping into the field right after undergrad and give them some experience and exposure. Well, with the counselor ed students, I mean, maybe you can clarify if you know anything about it. Like, 
do are those students from New York that are going into counselor ed are they actually doing any level of counseling in a K-12 setting uh, before they get the master's? Because I think with certain, see, this is one of the things, right? So certain types of areas in the university, I think, are more sensitive and probably require a different level of training that you might not get even from the experiential learning that you would have in a even if you were a highly involved student at the undergraduate level, right? So, so I think about how would you, you know, I can see some places maybe in, in the, the structure where this is not so much of a big deal, but even an area that we might think would be a good place for someone to start out, a place like housing and residence life, for example, okay? Well, I worked in housing and residence life, and I know that there are a lot of things that happen in housing and res life that, you know, you really need some, like, advanced education for. Like, for example, if you have a student that's, you know, has suicidal ideation, okay, that's not necessarily something, of course, you train RAs and you train paraprofessionals to be able to deal with that in a sort of emergency context, but... The skill level to help someone through, for example, long-term depression or uh, things like that are things that a lot of our student affairs professionals on college campuses have to do that I think do require a different level of kind of at least educational background or, you know, resources, experience. Or training uh, certifications. training and certifications, right? Like even... Yeah, you can't work in a college counseling center, for example, unless you are a licensed professional counselor, like a clinical LPC. So those types of things just wouldn't fly, even on the smallest campuses. So the word you use, paraprofessional, why don't we have those stepping stones? And that's kind of how I think of it. Um, So you're right, not a clinical uh, psychologist that's on our campuses or even counseling ed uh, roles in schools, K-12, they do require... LPCs and licensing for the most part. And I would say one, besides teaching experience is another part to that. So there are some sort of certifications or stepping stones, but why don't we have that space of um, let's call it a gap year or two where people go into the field in certain positions and get exposed as a paraprofessional and that helps them make some decisions on, well, what are they really interested in or what are their skill sets more leaning towards? Or is there a certain area that, they think they might want to cross train that's not even related to their current job until they get into a college or university when they're working. You learn so much when you're on a campus, especially campuses that are um, engaging their, their staff and practitioners to be involved in committees, help make decisions, get involved in student life in different ways beyond um, their role. Sure. Um, so the role will do that. But beyond that, they'll be exposed to meeting new people in the field, in their divisions and understanding oh, that's an area that I actually never even knew about. We didn't have that at my institution growing up. Or I didn't really, like, one example is our money management center where I work. I was like, that's a really cool resource. I wish we had that growing up, and not all campuses have it. And that would be an area that I would have loved to cross-train in or learn more about, especially as an academic advisor previously. Um, So I think that's kind of what I was thinking about. We never give that space for them to go, hmm, let's be de-semestered. So... I was ambitious like Paul and as an undergrad, I was really involved. 
I didn't go to a grad program right away because I got accepted into three different ones and a law school. And my friend said to me, and actually a faculty member in my undergrad said, what would happen if you were unsemestered or desemestered yourself? And I said, oh, no, we can't do that. And I took two to three years off in terms of I deferred enrollment and I said, decided I'm going to figure out what do I really want to do in life. And I did other travel and I worked as an educational assistant with special needs children to in a comedy club and you name it. So I did some random things to figure out, like, what am I most interested in that's going to drive what I do next before I jump into a master's? Because that's a piece we never let people take a pause. And I'm a really big proponent for gap years after high school, um, but even after college or university. Why don't we have that space for people to figure it out? Well, yeah, I think that there are probably a couple of reasons, right? So, like, the immediate thing that pops into my head has to do with financials. And I think that part of it, and it's financials on multiple levels, right? So, it's personal finances, right? Uh, If you take a year or two or three off and you're sort of moving around trying to figure things out, um, I completely agree. That's, like, a good thing, finding yourself. But... Not everybody is kind of in a privileged position, and I'm not saying you were, but, you know, in terms of how we finance our lives, you know, it's just, it's very difficult to do that and then think about jumping back into your academic career. Um, No, you're right. And so my privilege is where I lived. I had social, I have healthcare, I have social support services. I still worked, um, but there wasn't... I wasn't incurring a huge debt as an undergrad. I wasn't, I didn't have certain things that I had to think about, like where do I get my health care from if I'm not under my family or um, not supporting myself in a full career and doing some part-time work positions. I agree with you. You're right. So that's something I do think about that in the U S a lot because it's a huge undertaking to pay and finance and still continue to finance student loan and student debt at the undergrad to even right. take a pause before you go into a master's because you're right, there's loan forgiveness if you jump right into a program. So why why do we incentivize that, though? That's, I don't know, I guess I, I totally think you're right on that um, in terms of privilege because you're right, I was in a point in a, in a country that allowed me to do that where most of our students in the U.S. aren't always allowed to or able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's also a financial disincentive to do this from an institutional perspective, right? In the sense of if you bring in a lot of, and I guess like you could think of the traditional programs that have, you know, full-time graduate students who are doing GA ships, which is like the the model that I went through at Maryland, right? It's not the model I teach in now. Like the apprenticeship uh, model? Like were you? Yeah, I mean, I would say that like, you know, assistantship models where students go to school full time, the institution is subsidizing at least part of their tuition, if not all of it. Uh, they maybe are getting like graduate student health care. You know, those people that are doing that might be considered a sort of form of paraprofessionalism, right? Right. Because they are coming in and they're probably like working in a functional area for just one or two years, depending on how many credit loads they're going into their curriculum with. And the institution is kind of supporting that. But it's also interesting to think about it from a different perspective in the sense that there's been a lot of critique of institutions who, who abuse uh, 
graduate student labor uh, by paying them really terrible wages mm-hmm. and not giving them a lot of incentives to be working there. So, you know, I think about when I was at LSU, for example, I mean, my graduate student stipend every year was $8,000. I mean, you know, so I was living on $8,000 a year. And after you factor out taxes and other sorts of things, like really, what are you living on? Like nothing. You're totally in poverty. So, I mean, this is just, it's very complicated the way that we do it. And I think that the United States in general, I mean, you know, my politics, it's, if we could fix some of these problems that we have in the way that we do things in this country, like for example, healthcare, right? If we had single payer healthcare, that would solve some of these problems, not all of them, but it would take away problems for students that are like, well, what am I supposed to do? Not have healthcare for two years so I can go and do a gap year or, you know, what? I mean, I don't yeah, know. I think the barriers for removal. And uh, so I was reading an article that um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Patrick Love put on, oh, yeah. on the HCBA site. And he talks about the history of where student affairs, student services, um, academic advising, student practice, student support comes from. And some of it came out of the function of the roles scattered across our institutions or universities and colleges. Um, they have different functions, different departments, different institutions. And what was built out of, I guess, just organic happenstance is being looked at more specifically, right? The criteria to get in and the bar is higher now. There are some credentials people need to do the work, which is helping students with different ranges of mental wellness and health. Um, Also, students that are coming back from um, leaves of and absences of education, whether it's due to finances, military work, life and happenstance. So I think what we had as um, program preparation, maybe for that cohort model or traditional going to grad school between ages 22 to 28 or 27, isn't the norm that we're preparing people well enough for. So I I think about those um, adults coming in, the career changers, um, maybe those that had to do something else before they went in or thought they were taking a life in, I don't know, finance and said, this isn't for me. I'm looking for a different meaningful work. The other caveat that to that is I'm not always sure that our practitioners are not, not that they're not prepared for the role, whether they go from undergrad or a master's, um, are they aware of some of the politics and some of the structures they go into? And do we ever give them a pause or reality of that? So that's, we'll get, we both are very political in different ways, but we think about, um, what they don't know going into a program. Do they know the limited amount of money that they're going to make or what the cost of living is going to be before they make these decisions? Like, are these things we talk to them about as well? And I don't know if that always happens to enough of us um, to talk about um, financial planning for themselves and support and considering a family, or if they have those already, what does that mean if you shift into this um, practitioner work in a college or a university and what does this look like now so those are some things that kind of went through my head when I started thinking about preparation and do we have the right to up credential them and say you need a master's for that um, academic advising one position or whatever the position is on the campus um, not always because I think that puts people out and doesn't offer them ways to get entry and access to even the professional field before they decide, do I want to study this and invest two more years in school? 
Yeah. I mean, you said a couple of things that I think are really interesting. I mean, one is that sometimes, you know, we, even when we have students that are coming out of, let's say, a master's preparation program, and we talk about this all the time in our faculty meetings, right? There's a lot of things that you just don't have time to adequately cover. I mean, you think about, for example, when you said institutional politics. Well, let me tell you, okay, and you know this and I know this and anyone that's a higher ed administrator knows this. You, outside of Capitol Hill, you have never been in a more politically volatile place than an institution of higher education. And I would say that sometimes institutions of higher ed are even more political than Capitol Hill because there's lots of secrecy. There's lots of, you know, just stuff that happens behind the scenes that people don't know anything about. I don't know that there's any way to prepare people for that, even in a preparation program. I mean, some of that is just you have to experience it. So what Paul's you know saying, what I'm saying is there's a house of cards at a university's institution, so get ready for that. Yeah, I'm saying <laughs> that there is a house of cards. And you really, you can read about that stuff and whatever. You can talk about it. You can do case studies, whatever. But until you've experienced the way that it actually plays out in real time, yeah, yeah. you just, you know, that's not a, I, I don't know. To me, I think you can prepare people for that to a certain extent, but until they experience it, they're not going to be able to really understand what that is. Now, to the other point, something I do worry about if we moved to a sort of model where we gave people, you know, time to sort of float around in the university, uh, uncredentialed, doing certain types of things. One of the things I worry about is these people that I call lifers who um, end up coming into an institution, getting hired uh, right out of undergrad, and then they sort of stay there mm -hmm. and they move their way through the system without ever getting the, the, the educational credential. And those people can create problems on our campuses, too, because, say, for example, they, yeah, right. I mean, they so it becomes this kind of thing where it's like we've always done it this way or that's not really important. They may lose um, or not have certain types of skills or abilities that they might need to have in areas like the thing that always comes to my mind is you know, diversity, equity training, intercultural awareness, right? right? Those are the types of things that we train people for in our programs. And if you just work your way up through the system, it's not to say you can't pick those skills up elsewhere, but to have focused study of it. Where does it happen? Yeah, and it's almost like the idea of um, when you are going to finish, like we'll talk about like a terminal degree, we don't have to talk about that. When you finish your program, let's say it's a master's or right. an undergrad even, uh, you can't get hired from that institution. You should have to go somewhere else. So academics, when they apply for their first uh, tenure track, you typically are not hired at your institution. And nor do you want to be because you want to be exposed to a different department, a different field. You were the, you were the baby researcher in your institution studying in a PhD. So why do we do the same thing for undergraduates as well as graduate students? You're right, because some people stay and they're like, we love this and it's a culture of the same, which you could, you need some of that, but maybe there's like a, a cap on quota, like certain percentage will hire and then the other percentage have to move on. 
Yeah, I mean, that's complicated discussion, too, because I know that there are people who are, like, geographically bound, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I think about people that live in rural areas. Maybe they went to a rural campus, and their family's there, or, you know, they just have certain obligations. You know, I don't think that we should take opportunities away from those folks, right? Like, and by making them move to another institution, I mean, in some places, I'm just thinking about, I mean, I don't want to throw any one place under the bus, but, you know, a state like Wyoming, for example, right? They have one university and a few community colleges. Well, you know, if you grew up in Wyoming, you want to stay in Wyoming, your family's there, you've started a family or something, I, you know, I don't want the institution to necessarily say that you being in the institution is um, necessarily hindering its progress. But on the other hand, I also see, because I've worked at regional institutions, where they're chocked full of people who went to undergrad there, did their master's there, worked there full-time for 40 years, and it's very hard in those types of institutions to implement any sort of change on a structural level because the people who've been there for 40 years are very reticent and hesitant to change anything that they, you know, well, we did it like this when I was an undergrad. Yeah, but it's not 1972 anymore. Like, it's 2018. We got to get with the times, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the change comes with the other C, the culture. And I think when you think about who you hire and the employees, um, I think having some of the same stay does impact the culture and what does or does not shift and move and flow. Um, The other thing that you brought up was really interesting, I I think, is – And preparing uh, professionals, let's say they weren't going to do a formal uh, master's program or maybe a certificate in higher ed, whatever that might look like. And so Canada, we're pretty green. We have adult education programs for a long time, and we've seen higher ed and student affairs programs develop. But if they didn't have any of that, do you have really good internal uh, professional development training programs, and do you care about your talent, your staff talent and practitioner talent. So that would really require our institutions, our professional orgs and associations to have uh, effort to work towards um, not just a competency, but some sort of um, curriculum to develop talent, sustain and maintain and grow what we already have. Because I think there's motivation for that, but there's slim or interest when there's other these crises things that we have to take care of. So I think talent development gets left behind often or it's just something like we'll send you to a conference versus actually thinking about thoughtful ways to develop a staff a unit an individual with whoever you're working from so i think you're right it would require and it's not to say there aren't institutions that do that really well because there really are and i'm very proud i've got to work at a few of them that do it really well um but there's some that don't really see it as a value and it it's about the leadership at the institution or that division or department yeah, I think that's the key point, right? Institutional culture. If you if you work at an institution that sees ongoing professional learning, development, I, I say becoming all the time, right? Professional becoming, okay, that we're never static. If that's kind of built into the culture of the institution, if it's something that's valued, then I think you have a much better chance of being able to make that institution robust. But if people see it as a sort of obligatory thing, right? And and this is a model that I think a lot of campuses have gone to, okay? 
which is why I sometimes have problems with the whole competency-based continuing education credit thing, right? Because professionals start to see it as, well, I just have to do this in order to, you know, get my CEUs, or I just have to do this. And and who's controlling? I mean, that could be another whole episode, Laura, about like you know who's mm-hmm. controlling or monitoring on the back end, like the quality of those things. Right. Uh, I mean, that's like it's all really complicated and messy. All right. So we we don't have a final have result no on this. We have that's no answers. Okay. <laughs> we have no answers. We just have a lot more questions. But there are things that I think we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'll put out a few things we talked about in our show notes. But this conversation's not over. No, I think that we should also talk about terminal education. Oh, it's terminal already. Okay, we'll get to that later. So (laughs) (laughs) thanks for chatting. And until next time, we look forward to talking to you all soon. If you like us, give us some love on the Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We'd love to know what you're thinking and what we should talk about next or debate. We're up for it. Until then. Yeah. Bye.